treatments of Lyme disease, and that will be followed at 11.30 by Retired or Rewired, a series on aging in Portland. All of these KBU programs are made possible by members' support. If you would like to become a member, go to kboo.fm and click on Donate. And now stay tuned for Health Watch. Happy birthday! The Oregon Historical Society is featuring 50 years of KBU. The exhibit was created to relay our history and demonstrate the importance of community radio, featuring archival photographs and ephemera collected from KBU's five decades of broadcasting. The exhibit tells our story in our members' own collective words. Our online tour features highlights from the exhibit and companion audio clips to enrich visitors' experiences. The exhibit runs until July 29th at the Oregon Historical Society at 1200 Southwest Park Avenue in Portland. More information and audio clips can be found at 50yearsofkboo.fm. The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their healthcare practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Ellen Goldsmith, licensed acupuncturist, and I'm your host every second Monday of the month. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Tom Messenger, naturopathic physician practicing in Southeast Portland about Lyme disease. Lyme disease, contracted through bites from a black-footed deer tick and caused by the Borrelia burgdorferi bacteria, was once thought of as a disease only contracted in the northeastern region of the United States. However, with the spread of housing into once rural areas, the overabundance of deer and white-footed mice, another carrier of the black deer tick, and climate change, Lyme disease has spread throughout the country and throughout the world. We need to be aware that one can contract Lyme in Oregon. Dr. Tom Messenger, prior to becoming a naturopathic physician, was a registered nurse for 23 years and spent most of his career working in inner-city emergency rooms. His particular focus in practice now is working with patients who have Lyme disease or chronic Lyme disease and are suffering from symptoms associated such as chronic fatigue, chronic pain, fibromyalgia-like symptoms, and digestive complaints. He's an active member of the International Lyme Associated Disease Society, otherwise known as ILADS. Dr. Tom Messenger, welcome to Health Watch. Thank you, Ellen. I'm glad to be here. So... Oregonians are susceptible to Lyme disease through tick bites. And can you tell us what you know about it in, in Oregon and how people might be able to protect themselves? Um, it is Borrelia, the organism that causes Lyme, has been found in ticks in Oregon, in the gorge, um, out in the in Mount Hood area. Um, so it is um, possible to contract exposure. Also, what they've been finding is that a lot of ticks are being uh, taken through migration because they attach to songbirds and other kinds of migratory birds. And so it is even possible to contract Lyme even in a city, in an urban environment. It doesn't have to be out in the woods. Um, yeah, so as far as protection, I mean, the main thing would be 
to do if you're going into areas that would be more of a high risk for Lyme disease, such as woods or areas with you know tall grasses, that you want to closely ha- and do inspection post uh, hiking or post being in that area. And um, conventionally, the CDC recommends using something called DEET, which has been shown to be 99% effective to repel ticks. And that's a um, bug repellent, right? Yeah, correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a, sort of a harsh chemical. So as a naturopath, I I don't necessarily recommend that for myself um, or my patients. Um, there is a formula that was devised by Stephen Buhner, a famous Lyme herbalist um, with essential oils that has also been shown to be 99% effective. The formula is actually in his book called Healing Lime, the second edition. Um, and someone can order all of those essential oils online by looking at that formula. Or the easier alternative would be uh, you can actually get the formula through a f- compounding pharmacy called Montana Pharmacy. It's Montana F A R M A C Y. And they have a website, I think it's montanapharmacy.com. And you'll, if you, you know, put in the search, you know, ticks, and you'll see their different um, size formulas that they have. And you can use that as a repellent. What are some of the oils in that, in that formula? Um, the, the main oil um, that is really strong is a kind of a rhododendron. It's not your common rhododendron. It used to be they taxonomists or um, botanists reclassified this plant. It used to be Ledum palustrum, a, a, a famous homeopathic remedy. Um, so now it's called rhododendron. And also um, lemon uh, eucalyptus oil, which has been shown to be over 90% percent effective itself um, in studies and repelling ticks by itself, but the um, synergistic um, combination of all of these oils makes it up to 99 percent effective. But you still have to check yourself out when you come Oh in. yeah, you definitely want still want to check yourself out. And if you have a, if you notice a tick on you that's attached, um, in order to, you know, there's many um Online, you'll see many recommended ways to remove a tick, and you don't want to like try to suffocate the tick with Vaseline or burn the tick because what that does is stresses the tick, and the chances of them injecting organisms from the saliva into the body are increased. So, what's recommended to do is you you take a tweezer, preferably one that has sort of a pointed end, and you you get as close to the skin, your skin surface as possible and you pull straight upward. You don't want to pull really quickly and you don't want to twist because that's that. if you do that, the chances are that you could break off the tick and the mouth could still be in the skin. If that does happen, then you just you have to work on getting the, skin, uh, the mouth out. But if someone does have a tick bite, uh, do you recommend, what do you recommend, I mean, to do to just make sure, oh my gosh, did I get Lyme? Because sometimes they say you have to have this razor, I mean, this uh, bullseye. Right. But not all people get that bullseye, right? Correct. Very, very, very true. Um, So, and that's a very big misconception, even in um, the regular medical field, is that um, studies have shown that only 30 to at most 50% of people that have documented cases of Lyme had a bullseye rash or any rash. That's that's one thing. Secondly, is the rash does not have to be a bullseye if the person even gets a rash. Um, only 32% of rashes with documented cases of Lyme actually have that bullseye appearance where 
Bullseye meaning the rash expands over time, over three to 30 days, and this, the center part of the rash actually clears to become normal skin color, so it looks like a bullseye. But rashes could just look like a little oval uh, red area. It doesn't have to be a bullseye. In most of the cases, it isn't if there is a rash. So yeah, there doesn't have to be a, a bullseye. Um, What's recommended per ILADS guidelines, that organization that you had mentioned at the beginning, is that a person gets with no rash and no symptoms, they still get prophylactic antibiotic treatment with doxycycline twice a day for 20 days. Um, the reason for that recommendation is because they have done large studies on people that have gotten prophylactic antibiotic treatment for shorter than 20 days, and a very uh, large percent of them go on to develop persistent Lyme disease. So um, that's one of the recommendations. If the person has a, an actual bullseye rash, the recommendation is for antibiotic treatment four to six weeks um, prophylactically. If they actually have symptoms from the tick bite, which could be low-grade fever, the common symptoms would be low-grade fever, neck pain, headaches. It seems to go into the nervous system, central nervous system causes a lot of neck pain and headaches. Then the it's a minimum of six weeks of treatment of antibiotics, and then um, reevaluation and, and continued treatment accordingly if indicated. Um, now as a naturopath, you know, I when I'm treating chronic Lyme, a lot of times I'm not actually even using antibiotics or I'm using it very sparingly. I'm doing other things. Um, but in the case of acute Lyme for or prevention of acute Lyme, I might employ antibiotics um, just because uh, prevention and I can do things around preventing the side effects of antibiotics. Which are gut issues. Yeah, which and, are mostly gut issues. Yeah. So I'm giving probiotics and I'm giving some either herbal or a very safe prescription antifungal to protect a person from getting candida overgrowth. Mm -hmm. And I'm giving high dose probiotics. And I will also give a formula called MCBB2 from Beyond Balance. It's a, it's a Lyme herbal formula and that is very um, effective at prevention and also treatment of Lyme. And I will give uh, a homeopathic that lead at a high potency, 1M, I'll usually give that twice a day for at least a week because that's really good for um, prevention also for tick bites when they get a, there's an exposure. So there, it sounds like, you know, there are two different types of Lyme. There's this acute Lyme, like you said, with the, you know, low-grade fever, neck pain, headaches, et cetera. And then there's this monstrous thing called chronic Lyme. I know we've seen it in our clinic where people have actually are diagnosed after years of basically having horrible symptoms, you know, unexplained fatigue, uh, brain fog, um, pains that come and go, headaches that come and go, digestive issues, you know, that they've run around from one doctor to the next, and then, you know, they're tested for Lyme. So talk about this thing called chronic Lyme and, and, and the mechanism of it and, and how we're, yeah, let's start yeah. with that. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, there, you know, there are two camps. One uh, in conventional medicine, one believing that chronic Lyme doesn't exist, and one that does. The ILADS organization, um, and there are actually over seven hundred studies in peer-reviewed journals that have 
proven the persistence of the Borrelia in the human body after treatment. So chronic Lyme definitely does exist. Um, and the, you know, the, um, the symptoms that you described are, are very um, suggestive of Lyme. You know, they could be other things, but what a lot of us are seeing is that uh, patients have been experiencing these symptoms um, sometimes for many, many years, and they've often even gotten some very good treatment, but yet, you know, especially naturopathic treatment that, you know, maybe... Um, when things were not as complicated with environmental issues and toxicities that we were seeing, like 30 years ago, patients would respond, but now they're not. And so when I, when I have, um, when I first started getting into studying Lyme, it's because patients that normally I would have expected to get better doing the things that we do as naturopathic physicians, they did not respond. I knew something deeper was going on. So, um, so as far as the the testing for chronic Lyme, um, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of tell you that first I'll tell you the standard of care for testing of what it's commonly done. Um, and then some reasons why the standard doesn't work and the testing that I, I have been using with my patients. So um, if a person is... Ex- is experiencing symptoms that they think are due to persistent or chronic Lyme disease and they go to their doctor, the CDC recommends doing what's called an ELISA test. And this is the Center for Disease Control. Correct, the Center for Disease Control, Mm -hmm. which, um, you know, they put out guidelines that um, conventional doctors and even naturopaths are, you know, are, are do follow. And um, so the ELISA test, the first test is done. If that test comes back negative, then the the CD says the person does not have Lyme disease and no further testing is indicated. And what is an ELISA test for our listeners? It's, it's a general antibody screening test to see if a person's been exposed to Borrelia. And it's a blood test? Yeah, it's a blood test. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, is that there's been a lot of studies done on it and it um, only 30 to 50% of the people that have documented cases of Lyme had a positive ELISA test. And we, when I say documented cases of Lyme, I'm saying by blood culture. They later went on, had blood cultures done, and Borrelia was found in the blood. So it, they know they, that they had that infection. But the CDC says if you have a negative ELISA, you shouldn't do any more testing. So a lot of times, you know, I've seen patients and, you know, we're trying to, you know, they come to me not knowing what's going on. And I said, have you been tested for Lyme? They say, yes. And my doctor says, I don't have it. Well, they, it turns out they had the ELISA test and no further investigation was done. When we did further testing, it turns out they did have it. Um, so that's one of the problems with the, the ELISA. The second, if the ELISA does come back positive, the next tier of testing is what's called the Western blot. That has some inherent issues with it also, unfortunately. So that also is an antibody test, but it's it's more um, detailed than the ELISA. And it has something called bands. It's different proteins that they're testing to see if a person has antibodies to any of those proteins that could be from Borrelia. So um, some years back when the um, they, develop, they developed the Lyme vaccine, the Lyme vaccine 
when they was developed by the two most important bands on the Western Blot, bands 31 and 34. And um, so the CDC removed those bands from the Western Blot test. Vaccine went to market, had a lot of side effects. It was pulled from the market six months later, and the CDC never reinstated those two most important bands. So when a person gets a Western Blot from a local lab, you know, or a national lab that's not specializing in Lyme disease, they don't have those two most important bands. So a person could have a negative Western Blot um, simply because those bands aren't being tested. The other issue with the Western blot is it's an antibody test. It's testing your immune system and Borrelia by its very nature suppresses the immune response. So a person could still have Lyme disease even if they have a really good Western blot done and still have a negative Western blot. And the Borrelia is the bacteria you're saying? Correct. Borrelia is the bacteria. It's a sneaky little devil. Yeah. <laughs> and forgive me if I'm talking fast, but I know there's a lot to no, fit in yeah, in a half please, hour. Please fill it in. Um, so... Um, I will sometimes I will sometimes do Western blots as a screening, but the tests that I'm using now predominantly is um, called a urine PCR test from a lab called DNA Connections C O N N E X I O N S. Um, it's a urine test, and it's testing for the actual presence of the DNA of the organism in the urine. And um, so it's not only testing for Borrelia, but there's these other infections that are often transmitted via tick saliva to the to the host, in this case a human, um, with a tick bite. So it's testing for multiple infections. Um, so if the person has the DNA of this organism in their urine, it came from their body, we know for sure they have the infection. So this is a kind of, a, this is really an infection that would you call this, it's pretty active, but it's pretty hidden to conventional testing, it sounds like. Yes, and that's one of the problems with uh, the diagnosis is that you can have the infection and not have positive testing. And um, I there's, there's ILADS actually says that Lyme disease, their statement is that Lyme disease is actually a clinical diagnosis based on exposure risk, based on physical symptoms and history, um, and ruling out other causes of their symptoms. So a person could actually be diagnosed with Lyme per the ILADS guidelines without having a positive test. I mean, I, I like to have the assurance of, of positive data, so I, I, um, that's where the urine PCR test does come in really handy. So for those people that you've been working with in your clinic with you know, chronic, intractable kind of Lyme disease, really, um, what what's the, what kind of treatment? What's the prognosis? Are you seeing people getting better? How long does it take? I mean, I know everybody's different, and that's not really a, a really fair question because everyone is different. But what do you yeah. see? Um, people are getting better. I I would say the majority of my patients are getting better. I have some that I am struggling with, and what I have learned and through conferences and speaking to experts is that when a person is not responding to Lyme treatment and you're doing all the other things that need to be done with Lyme treatment, that it often there's a component of mold toxicity in the system. And so I've been recently doing a lot of work up for patients regarding mold. So a person could be exposed to mold and they can harbor those molds or the mold organisms and the mold toxins in their body, and it can cause all the same symptoms as Lyme. So you're saying that if someone has the Lyme disease within the system, or like the DNA in the blood, et cetera, 
does that makes them more susceptible to mold? Or what, Not I, necessarily, but it seems like the, a lot of patients that have Lyme also have that, also have mold toxicity. So there's actually a genetic test that's done through LabCorp that you can determine if a person has a genetic susceptibility where they can't, their immune system can't identify the Lyme organism from and eliminate it from their body and also mold toxins if they can't identify mold toxins and 24% of the population has a genetic defect where if they get exposed to mold toxins or mold they cannot their immune system cannot identify the mold and can't eliminate it from their body so it colonizes and in the body in the two main places it colonizes is in the gastrointestinal tract and the sinuses um so there's something called the biotoxin pathway. It's this biochemical pathway of what happens when a person has Lyme in their, in their system and causes all these downstream effects of h- hormone disruption and, and leaky gut and et cetera. And um, mold actually f- goes along the same exact biotoxin pathway and causes all the same symptoms. So when a person is not responding to Lyme treatment, Oftentimes, mold is part of the picture, and what's been found is that the mold needs to be treated and gotten out of the system, removed from the system, and then person will respond to Lyme treatment. So in Oregon, particularly, that's very challenging because it's such a damp climate we live in, and we know that mold is pervasive in people's homes, et cetera. It's a it's a huge issue, Ellen. Yeah. So you're to- really talking about something we call in naturopathic medicine the terrain or the health. Of, I mean, if there's a genetic defect, and that that's not your fault. You know, that's Correct. just part of your structure. But then, how if there's a genetic defect, how do you treat that in, that mold issue in the body that's concurrent with Lyme? Right. So, um, well, we. We want to make sure that the person doesn't have a, if we find that they have the genetic defect, I also do a, a urine mycotoxin test. They come back positive. We have to make sure they're not currently being exposed. Maybe they were exposed when they were growing up 30 years ago and the uh, and accumulation of events over the course of their life has now made them you know, sick. Um, and so we want to make sure they're not currently being exposed so that we're not swimming upstream while we're trying to treat them. And then we do a, a, a lot of things to help clear the mold from the GI tract, from the sinuses, and, and from the cells in the body. Um, and so the, you mentioned the terrain, and the, the terrain is a big piece of this um, with Lyme treatment. And so even medical doctors, you know, ILADS, the organization who we had talked about earlier, um, is made up of predominantly medical doctors. And what they have realized is that antibiotics alone is not a successful treatment for Lyme disease in most cases because... Um, it's more than just about the infection. Um, and there's, there's a lot of, there's multiple um, aspects to treating Lyme disease. One is detoxing the system, getting rid of tox, toxins in the body, because um, the question is, why does, you know, there's people that get exposed to Borrelia and they don't ever get sick. 
That's the bacteria. Yeah, the that bacteria. Lyme. Yes. Mm-hmm. There's people that get exposed to the bacteria that causes Lyme that don't get sick, and there's people that do. What What are the difference makers? And so naturopathic philosophy, you know, in Chinese medicine, we talk a lot about the terrain, you know. So certain people will have, over the course of life, we all get exposed to toxins in our environment, in our food, and different traumatic events that happen to us, you know, stressors, mental, emotional stressors. And over time, these things accumulate and cause impact on our system. And then if we had gotten exposed to Borrelia, say, 20 years ago, but never really had symptoms, then the immune system starts to get knocked down by these different toxins that are accumulating in our system. And then that Borrelia, that organism that causes Lyme, could start to take hold. That's the one, one of the things I'm seeing. So there's people that I'm seeing that have been sick for, that are, say, 50 years old. They've been sick now for 20 years, have been to, uh, you know, 10, 20, 30 doctors and have not gotten a diagnosis. Um, they had a tick, we, they have a known tick bite when they were seven years old when they grew up on the East Coast, um, but didn't get, were not sick in teenage years, um, were not sick through college and then got sick. Um, so, you know, one of the concepts that's important to know about and is that, you know, they're, they're, can be a peaceful coexistence where we can get exposed to different organisms and if our immune system is strong and our body is functioning in a healthy state then we can ward them off and they might just peacefully coexist in our body and never cause a problem but once things start accumulating in our body then our system can become compromised and those infections can take hold wow that's uh, not a pretty picture. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, but it is a treatable disease. That's um, good to know. Yeah. And, ha- you know, I mean, when you say it's treatable, like like this person you talked about who had Lyme for 20 years, I mean, how long do you think it really, how long have you seen that it takes for people to improve and, and, and build up their vitality and strength? Um, it, it's a case-by-case basis, but I'd say on average two to three years this is, yeah, it's, I mean, if if this is a person that's just been sick for six to 12 months, then of course it's going to be much quicker than that. But many people have been plagued with, you know, accumulation of toxins and different kinds of infections over the years. And so it's not a short-term treatment. It, um, there's detoxing the system, there's repairing the damage that's caused by the infection, you know, it can, and, it can cause damage to the different hormones like the thyroid, the adrenals, um, you know, the sex hormones like for female, if they're, they get damaged their ovaries where they have effect, they're not producing enough progesterone or estrogen. Um, it, you know, it can affect the GI tract and cause leaky gut, um, the heart, the joints, the muscles, the skin. So we have to do a lot of repair work too on top of, you know, trying to target and eradicate the infection. What are some um, what are some resources for? You've already mentioned a few, the Montana Pharmacy and, and some different labs. But what are some resources people could go to if they want to find out more? Yeah, so a great website is um, by one of the past presidents of ILADS. Um, his website his name is Daniel Cameron, C A M E R O N, and I think the website if you just Google Daniel Cameron. Um, Lime. Lime, you'll come up, you'll come up, but I think it's Daniel Cameron, MD, 
um, M is in Mary, D is in doctor, mm-hmm. dot com. And it has an, a wealth of information about ever about all kinds of topics around Lyme disease. Um, so that's great. Um, there's uh, an herbalist, Stephen Buner, who's written multiple books, but his second edition of Healing Lyme that just came out in the last year or two is a wealth of information. It's all um, documented, you know, researched um, and substantiated by research, a wealth of information. Um, there's a book called Why Can't I Get Better by Dr. Richard Horowitz, H-O-R-O-W-I-T-Z. He's a medical doctor in upstate New York, one of the leading Lyme experts in the world. Um, it's an amazing book for both uh, lay people and practitioners, has a wealth of information. Um, he actually has in that book a questionnaire, a Lyme screening questionnaire, which I also will sometimes use in my practice, but it's great for other practitioners or for lay people to take. If a person scores over 46 points on their questionnaire, the probability of them having Lyme disease is, is high. Okay. So, uh, Dr. Messenger, if people want to reach you, how can they? Um, my... Uh, practice uh, is called Portland Natural Medicine. Um, and so the website is portlandnaturalmedicine.org or 503-239-1022. Um, if they're calling to schedule an appointment, I'm, I'm limited on the new patients I'm taking. But if they say, tell the front desk that they heard me on the wait radio show, then they, we can get them in. Fantastic. Well, we have been speaking with Dr. Tom Messenger on the treatment of Lyme disease. This has been extraordinarily informative and helpful, and I hope to our listeners, too. Thank you so much, Dr. Messenger, for being with us today on Watch. Uh, you're welcome, Ellen. Thank you. You can listen to this episode and more episodes of HealthWatch online at kboo.org slash healthwatch. KBU Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBU in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBU Community Radio's open meeting policy is available by calling the station at 503-231-8032. Meetings will be held at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue in Portland. The Personnel Committee will meet on the second Monday of each month at 6 p.m. Here's our series on Aging in Portland. Retired or rewired? What it's like getting old in a youth-centered city. Are you up for that challenge? We'll bring you lots of views, but you'll have to answer this question for yourself. Is Portland a good place in which to grow old? This is the 20th and final episode in KBOO's series on what it's like to age in Portland. We call it Retired or Rewired. In this final episode, we have distilled the key ideas and information from all the previous shows and roughly 40 interviews that address many different aspects of life for the elderly residents of Portland. We try to answer the question, what does that term mean, elderly? And we pose an answer to the question that got us started. 
Is Portland a good place in which to get old? First, a few ideas that opened our eyes. People over 65 make up 12% of Portland's metro area population, and a significant portion of this population is over 85. Here's the city demographer, Uma Krishnan, giving some perspective. We have over 72,000 older adults in uh, our wonderful city, and they make up about 12% of the city's population. Big number and big share. No, we are younger than the metro area. We are younger.